It's time, once again, for Deep Thoughts. Hey, you're listening to Deep Thoughts, a podcast that really does deep dives on various aspects of the Christian faith. I'm your host, Matt Schantz, and most Deep Thoughts episodes, as you well know, feature a guest who's written a book on an aspect of the Christian faith or is deeply immersed in a particular field or just has a lot of wisdom to share about a subject that I want to explore on the podcast. But from time to time, we change it up and sprinkle in a Deep Thought episodes, essentially where I just riff on a particular subject. And that's what this episode is. Episode 67 is a Deep Thought on the Israelite Conquest. Now, the Israelite conquest is also known as the Canaanite conquest, when at the instruction of God himself, the Israelites enter this promised land. Now, a conquest is subjugation and assumption of control of a place or people by use of military force. And so what we'll explore in this episode is how to make sense of God's command to the Israelites to take the land of promise from the Canaanites using military force. More specifically, we'll try to make sense of the passages of scripture where God instructs the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites dwelling in the land. So, you know, deconstruction is a buzzword, sure, um, but it is nonetheless taking place all around us in our churches and families and friend circles. You know, whether it is the spotty record of the church throughout history or difficult doctrines or wacky theology, fallen mentors or celebrity, fallen celebrity preachers um, or personal harm at the hands of so-called Christians or extra biblical traditions that that really should be deconstructed. Um, Many reasons. Still, there are others who have real difficulty with particular texts of scripture that they cannot understand or worse, that they think they do understand and are deeply troubled by. And the passages of scripture about Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan at God's instruction are some of the most difficult in the whole Bible. Not only are there significant moral questions about the character of God, the character of a God who would command such things as destruction of every man, woman, and child in a particular city. But it turns out that there are significant questions and diverging interpretations pertaining to what God was actually commanding the Israelites to do. So that's what we'll explore for a few minutes in this episode together. Now, if you read the conquest passages in the book of Joshua and elsewhere, The world-renowned evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, if you read it the way he does, you will conclude that it is a case of ethnic cleansing. He writes that it is, quote, a text remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacres it records and the xenophobic relish with which it does so. Xenophobia, by the way, has to do with fear and hatred of foreigners. He goes on, the Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho and the invasion of the promised land in general is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds and Marsh Arabs. So while Dawkins' interpretation of events is particularly seething, he goes on to assert that the Bible is simply a work of fiction. 
Many who believe the Bible, though, wrestle with the difficult nature of these texts, leading them to question the goodness of God. As friend of the podcast Joshua Ryan Butler put it in his fantastic book, The Skeleton in God's Closet, he, quote, he says, quote, God's violence is for many people the greatest skeleton in his closet. All right, so was it fiction? Was it genocide? A case of xenophobia? Just or unjust holy war? Or, or something else? The big question looming over all of this is, is God just or is God a moral monster? Well, the Hebrew word at the center of this discussion is harem, which means to devote to destruction, to ban, or to dedicate. So what are we to do with the harem command of Yahweh in the Canaanite conquest, and how are we to reconcile it with the character, nature, and mission of God so clearly and routinely articulated throughout the Bible? All right, here we go. What did God command Joshua and the Israelite army to do? What is the language and context of the verses in question? What was the objective and what was the result? Well, in Joshua 6.17, among other places, Joshua gives his army the instructions he received from God. Quote, the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction, end quote, for harem. And while it can refer to something devoted to God or under a ban, it also means devoting persons or things to be utterly destroyed. In Joshua 6.17, as with much of its use in the conquest passages, all of the conquest passages, um, it is used with the sense to devote to God, to give something exclusively to God with the implication that it must be completely destroyed to avoid human use. Joshua is telling his army that everything and everyone, except for Rahab and her family, we'll talk more on that later, shall be devoted to God for destruction. So the plain reading of the text would, would lead really anyone to believe that God is calling for the killing of an entire city here, if we look at the Jericho situation. The straightforward reading is what leaves many questioning the very goodness and morality of God. But is that what God is calling for in the conquest and in his harem command? Okay, so Dawkins' view notwithstanding, um, four views commonly rise to the top in interpreting the conquest. And Charlie Trim wrote a new book, and in his new book, The Destruction of the Canaanites, he says the question, challenge, or problem of the conquest might be resolved by reevaluating one of four things. One, God. Two, the Old Testament. Three, the interpretation of the Old Testament. Or four, the violence in the Old Testament. In other words, God's call to devote the Canaanites to total destructions means either one, God is not good, we need to reevaluate God. Two, the Old Testament is not a faithful record, we need to reevaluate our view of the Old Testament. Three, the Old Testament does not describe anything like a genocide. Or four, the mass killing of the Canaanites in the Old Testament was permitted for that one point in history. Now, for the purpose of this brief podcast episode, and in keeping with historic Christian orthodoxy, we large, we're we going to largely ignore the first two and spend our time focused on the exegetical, historical, moral, and theological data of the final two. 
So the following are reasons why the third view is most likely what was taking place. And then I'm going to touch on the fourth view a little bit at the end. The third view is the Old Testament does not describe anything like a genocide. So to describe this, to unpack this, let's let's back up a little bit and survey the redemptive nature of God beginning to unfold very early in Scripture, where God, bringing Abraham out under the night sky, declared that his offspring, Abraham's offspring, offspring would be as numerous as the stars. And then as Abraham looked out over the land of Canaan, God reiterated that it would be given to him to possess and then made a covenant with him. Now, interestingly, at that very same time, and we see it in the very same chapter, Genesis 15, God said that his offspring would be sojourners and servants in a different land and afflicted for 400 years. Why? Well, he goes on to say that in Genesis 15 as well. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, the Amorites were a more specific group of Canaanites, a group of people in Canaan. So, does a xenophobic God send his chosen people into bitter slavery for 400 years in order to wait patiently for the time when judgment is just? Does a moral monster of a God allow his chosen people to suffer while the Amalekites continue their slow and steady spiral into more and more abominable practices such as child sacrifices and bestiality? It does not. Rather, it paints a picture of a patient God finally, after 400 years, bringing down tribes ripe for judgment. Not only that, um, God chose the Israelites to be his chosen and treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth. And it wasn't because they were the biggest, they were actually very few, but because of an undeserved love for them and covenant-keeping promise that God made with Abraham. That God was faithful to. And so while God eventually uses Israel to drive out the Canaanites out of the land, that actually doesn't negate the fact that Israel's possession of the land was an undeserved gift. Therefore, when Israel themselves went through generations of unfaithfulness to God, they too would experience partial removal of which the Old Testament goes on to describe through, through multiple exiles. Israel experienced the just judgment of God upon them in the form of exile after exile throughout the Old Testament. So they too were held accountable. So these are not the actions of a xenophobic, unjust, genocidal maniac, but of a righteous, holy, and patient God. In Exodus 34, Moses brings two freshly cut tablets up the mountain where God will write the commandments. God met Moses on the mountain in a cloud, and shortly after renewing his covenant, he says this in Exodus 34, Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, this is where I usually say, and the Mennonites, just super cheesy pastor joke there. Take care, it goes on to say, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, and cut down their asherim. In other words, rip down their idols. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord is a jealous God. Now, it's not saying that God is jealous as like a negative trait, but if he is the one true God of the universe, of the world, he is the only one due worship of God, not these others. 
it's only right that we would worship the one true God. And so it's a good jealousy in the fact that it actually is pointing to, um, pointing rightly. Now here in another conquest text, it appears that the real concern of Harem, this is really important, is not to destroy all the Canaanites, but completely destroy Canaanite religion. It's not that all the Canaanites completely be destroyed, but to destroy Canaanite religion completely. God is a jealous God who will not share the worship of his people with other gods. To some degree, the Canaanite people would be a threat to their devotion to God, but in a greater sense, the idols and temples and holy sites and practices were what needed to be utterly destroyed. The concern of this destruction, of this harem, was to see Israel established in a land purged of Canaanite idolatry as painlessly as possible. The driving out, thrusting out, and dispossessing references are considerably more numerous than the destroying and the annihilating ones. According to scholar Paul Copen, fleeing Canaanites would escape. Only the resistant were at risk. When the language of drive out is greater than destroy, and the insight that those seeking to flee were left to run, the conquest begins to take shape in a more palatable light. Driven out is the language of eviction, not murder. You know, I wrote a paper on this subject recently, and you can probably tell by the way I'm reading off this content. Um, And here was my favorite part of my research. It's about trash talk. Trash talk. So listen up, you pansies. NFL Hall of Fame defensive tackle Warren Sapp has said that he has a master's degree and two doctorates in trash talk. Trash talk is commonplace in the heat of battle in sports. After the game, it's not unusual to hear a team reflect in the locker room by saying, we destroyed them, or we annihilated them. Or if things didn't go so well, um, you might say, man, we got killed out there, or they slaughtered us. Well, as it turns out, it was common practice in ancient Near Eastern warfare rhetoric as well. What would sound like bragging and exaggeration to us was simply typical hyperbolic warfare language to ancient Near Easterners. Let me show you an example. In Joshua 11, it says, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath. And in Ashdod did some remain. Okay, so on the one hand, there is the language of harem, devoting them to destruction with the language of none left. Well, the very next sentence acknowledges some remain. All in all, the sort of ancient trash talk existed that gave the impression that the Canaanites were utterly destroyed, but then only to read a few chapters later in the very same book that the Canaanites were still around. Now, another important dynamic to keep in mind has to do with cities, the idea of cities. We think something specific when we hear the word city. We think Vancouver or city center, all sorts of life going on. Well, Jericho and Ai were cities, but really they were military strongholds. That's what they were. Military strongholds made up of soldiers and a king. And the king was essentially the general of a number of men. So that's a far cry from the image many people have in mind of a city with a marketplace and a town square and children running through the streets as their mothers tend to some household chores while while keeping a watchful eye. Jericho, for example, was such a small walled-in city that the Israelite army could walk around it seven times and do battle against it all in one day. 
In all likelihood, something like 100 soldiers occupied this military stronghold. That's it. That's all it was. When the walls came down, those who stayed to fight were harem, and those who retreated were spared. Both that and this statement in Joshua 6.17 can be true at the same time. The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now, it's really important that we, ha- we, we, we get, I think, right to ground zero of the difficulty of this whole idea of, of the Canaanite conquest. Um, and that is of, of texts that speak of men, women, and children. Now, 1 Samuel 15 is, is, I think, just about the most challenging text of them all on this subject. But it may have actually been a similar scenario to that of Jericho. It's about Saul's destruction of the Amalekites, this time with fortified Amalekite strongholds, not cities as we think of them. So while the instruction is to strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Um, There are actually two contrary arguments that stand in the way of that literally being what took place. First, the expression of men, women and children or some variation of that seems to be much like ancient Near Eastern trash talk in the sense that it was a handle for describing all the inhabitants of a particular place, regardless of if there were women and children in it. So we naturally read that statement and assume the breadth of age and gender being there, but not so in this ancient context. Their minds would go, uh, would not go there, but simply to the use of the expression as representing totality, regardless of the makeup of the place. Again, which was likely a military stronghold. So these were stock expressions. But second, here's an even more compelling reason why we can assume that the Amalekites were not killed, not all killed, not all given to harem. Before the book of 1 Samuel even concludes, Amalekites appear again and well beyond that, 1 Samuel 27 and 30 and and, and in 1 Chronicles 4. They're still around. So clearly every man, woman, and child was not devoted to destruction, but simply the military stronghold and all who remained to fight. Now let's get back to Rahab. The fact that Rahab and her family are the only non-military individuals named likely were the only non-military people in Jericho and were spared, reveals that God's command to harem to devote to destruction was not absolute and irreversible. Now, Rahab ran the inn, and, and her task was hosting and feeding any guests to Jericho. By all accounts, her and her family were the only non-military people there. And so the refrain from Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, reminds us that God always has been and always will be glad to save those who trust in him, which Rahab did. Now look, while the numerous caveats I've I've listed off lend themselves to the third view Trim proposes that the Old Testament does not describe anything like a genocide, that's, that's what I'm summarizing here, we're still left with the reality that after 400 years, the Canaanites were ripe for God's justice upon them for their abominable behavior and for Israel to be used as a tool to bring that justice upon them. So, like I said, I don't think that the Israelite conquest is describing anything like a genocide, but humor me here for a moment as we explore the fourth possibility Trim presents, which is the mass killing of the Canaanites in the Old Testament being permitted for that one instance in history. 
Now, Abraham um, actually interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. And what we see happening there was Abraham asking that God spare the city if there were 50 righteous and eventually even just 10 righteous. But the problem was that there were not 10 righteous in the city, not even 10 God-fearing, God-honoring people in the city, and they were destroyed. And so, is it just? Is it is it is it unjust, or uh, for the unrighteous to face judgment for their idolatry and rebellion against the one true God? Is God a moral monster? I believe the answer, the answer given in Scripture, is a resounding no. God is just precisely because He punishes evil. To just let it slide would be unjust. If there was some notorious murderer who got caught and the courts let it slide, we would all cry, that's the most unjust thing in the world. And it would be unjust of God to let um, horrible things slide. As the psalmist says, the Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. It's a hard word but a consistent one throughout the Bible. The Canaanites were a rebellious people full of idolatry that led them to sexual perversion and sacrifices that equated to murder of even their own children in like horrendous child sacrifices. And so if judgment is warranted, God is not unjust, but a just judge. And we should all be soberly reminded of our sinful nature, our need of saving, and the unmerited grace of God extended to the undeserving. That's one of the themes that should arise in our hearts as we read about this, this, these conquest texts. God used the Israelite army to judge the Canaanites for their rebellious sin when the time was right. You know, even among Bible-believing Christians today, the, the concept of judgment is rarely talked about. It's sort of gone out of style. Like our society's aversion to death and dying, churches seem to rarely go right out and say that Christ is returning and will judge the living and the dead, though Romans 10 and 2 Timothy 4 and other places state it so clearly. We, we just don't want to sound like the fire and brimstone era of old. And so the proverbial pendulum swings to the other extreme. Sure, the Canaanite conquest was a unique and non-recurring set of circumstances, yet the themes of God's patience and the day of judgment continue today. The Apostle Peter said, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." So why has the second coming of Christ not taken place yet? Perhaps the word God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15 stands. Their iniquity is not yet complete. In the meantime, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham's descendant, Jesus, as his followers bring the gospel, salvation, and hope to the nations. Just as Rahab and her family were spared from being devoted to destruction in the mercy of salvation, the gospel is held out to broken people in near and far away lands to be, to be received by faith. You know, the great exchange is a term referring to our sins exchanged for Christ's righteousness. On the cross, he got the destruction so we could get the grace that flows from it. I think it's important that we remember that while God is gracious, he's also just. 
It's by putting our trust in Jesus that we experience his grace rather than his wrath. The Israelite conquest of Canaan is a vivid reminder that the guilty will not go unpunished. Just as salvation of Rahab and her family is vivid reminder of the grace available to each one of us. Hey, I hope you're having a great summer so far and that you're able to take deep thoughts with you wherever you're off to on vacation or staycation or whatever. As always, the best way to support the growth and longevity of the podcast is to give it an honest five-star review on Apple Podcasts and send episodes to loved ones and post about the podcast on social media. Really appreciate all the love that you show it. Next up, I'll share a deep thought on Christianity and the isms, you know, like relativism, and secularism, and polytheism, and so on. Should be a fun one. Then after that, I've got an interview with Jonathan Dodson on his book, The Unwavering Pastor, that I cannot wait to share with you. I recorded the conversation a few weeks ago. It was the perfect uh, dialogue for me to get to have just before going on sabbatical. I'm grateful for the timing of it, and I hope that it's perfectly timed in your life as well when it drops. Thanks for listening to Deep Thoughts. I hope it helps you in fostering deep faith. You're thinking deep now.